Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Samantha Edis, founder and CEO of Park Place Payments. She's also a contributor on Forbes. She gets asked to do a million different keynotes. She's even on TV. Saw you on Fox News the other day talking about remote work. So, so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alex. So we have a lot to, to learn from you. I know the story is fantastic. Where I would like to start is kind of how you found product market fit with Park Place Payments. So maybe you could start with like just like a, a really, really quick intro and then just kind of how did you know that you had found product market fit and then we can kind of continue the story from there. And, and I got all kinds of questions and learnings and things that we can we can capture. Sure. Well, I, I saw two needs, which is why I created Park Place. So on one hand, I saw that small business owners were super unhappy with their payment processors and it's kind of like a necessary evil. No one starts a wine store because they love, you know, insurance and legal and payments and all the stuff, the headache parts yeah. of the business, you know, no one, no one, because they, they got into it because they love wine and no one starts, you know, a, a sports business because, because of that either. They love sports. And, and so I found that so many small business owners were complaining about their payment processors. And at the same time, I had noticed that there were tons of women who left the workforce, couldn't get back in and ended up sort of having no opportunities except for selling for multi-level marketing companies and losing money, not even making martini money. And so I saw these two needs and I thought, wait a second, what if I could train a sales force of women to go out and sell payment processing to their local businesses, you know, and they already had relationships with them and to do it in a way where they could only earn money, they could never lose money because we weren't going to charge to train them. And so that's really how Park Place was born. But I recognize that the, that the one thing people would question and the one thing I, I was even not certain of is could people with zero background in sales, zero background in financial services be successful selling? And so in terms of product market fit, what I did was, okay, to find the market first, and then I really tested the market. So I went to six different cities to train people with zero background in financial services to sell to their local business owners, to their kids' pediatrician and their hair salon and their their yeah. you know dog groomers. So we chose the six cities, which was important to figure out like the market that we felt like would be the biggest easy wins for us and also be representative of the rest of the country. And then once we'd done that, you know, it was off to the races. And I'm a big believer in terms of product market fit. I think I have seen certain entrepreneurs fail by obsessing over having every single T crossed and I dotted before they launch. And I'm a big believer that when you're an entrepreneur, you have to pivot frequently. And that means you go to market and you see what works and you see what doesn't. And then you constantly iterate based on what you've seen. And I think that's really important when you are launching a business to know that no matter how much research you do, you're really never going to see what's going on until you get out there. So how, how did, I mean, when you think about testing these cities, I mean, how did you think about that? Because 
I, I, I get what were the first six cities? Like, how did you, how were you able to, to choose those? Yeah, so they were Salt Lake City, Los Angeles, because I was in Los Angeles, Seattle, Houston, because one of our founding members was based there, okay. Washington, D.C., and I think our, our final city, was that, is that six or is that five? Yeah, I, our final city was Boston, I think. And they were all cities that I had oh, some connection to. They were all cities that I felt like, you know, were, were multiple places in the country and we could really sort of understand how people were experiencing our product and how easy it was to sell. You know, we, we made tons yeah. of mistakes in those early months, so those early years. We learned from them and got smarter as we went. But the great thing was in those rooms when we trained people, you know, I, I aimed to have, it wasn't Boston, it was San Francisco, just correcting myself because I wanted to make yeah. it as easy as possible for to travel to those cities. So it was <laughs> easy for sense. me to do. Yeah, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles were super easy. But, you know, one of the most important things was to say, okay, we want a multitude of people in those rooms. We had former Olympic gold medalists, flight attendant, doctors, lawyers, newscasters, people in every field you could think of with every background imaginable. And it gave us a flavor for what people cared about and what were the stumbling blocks. You know, we made the mistake in the in the early days of training people with like a half a day to a full day of number crunching. And then we got smart about it and realized like, why should they have to crunch the numbers? Our full-time team should be able to do that for them. So we kind of took that out of the sales process for them. So there were a lot of things that, that we learned from that process of going out to the market and seeing what worked. Now we really couldn't have trained them and saw what worked and didn't work if we hadn't decided, okay, we're gonna go to market and see how it goes, right? So if we had just had a hypothetical, it would not have been as successful. So those early days were really important. We were really sort of on the ground figuring it out as we went. Well, that's really interesting because I mean, it's it's the same way that I think about it, but it's this hypothesis test, right? You come up with this hypothesis, you were able to pick these cities and you say, hey, let's go do it. So all did you fly to the different cities and do the training in person then, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and did you have, I think the hardest like, thing, Alex, was like we had... How did you find these people? <laughs> Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. The hardest thing was finding these people. I mean, if yeah. I had ever met someone with any connection to Salt Lake City, I would call them or write them and say, do you know anyone in Salt Lake? Do you know any moms who need a new opportunity? Do you know anyone who wants a freelance side hustle or full-time gig? You know, and that's, that's how we went about it. Now, ironically, I would love to say I'm a fortune teller, but I could not have predicted that only a few years, years later we would have a freelance revolution and now it's not just moms who left the workforce who want a freelance position, it's everyone, right? So yeah. now like half the country wants to be freelancers in the next couple of years. So that right. definitely changed the game for us. We were really well positioned to capitalize on that because we were already up and running. And so now the caliber and the breadth of people that we have who want to be account executives with Park Place is kind of more extraordinary than I could have imagined. Did you, did you from, I mean, all, you got six different cities, all different walks of life, backgrounds, resumes. Did you figure out like what, or what did you figure out in the early days that worked versus maybe didn't work, which is really like who worked for it, like the best for this? 
Like what were some you of know, those? You know, I would say my confidence in being able to predict who would be successful at Park Place has actually gone down, not up. <laughs> so, you know, in the beginning, I thought, oh my gosh, I'll, I'll definitely be able to tell right away if someone's going to be good at this. Right. And people that I thought were going to be just like A plus superstars were often not. And then people who I really was like, we should not be investing in this person you know, shocked me. And what I learned is like, even if someone has a winning personality and confidence, if they don't also have that ambition or that hustle in them, or then maybe even just the need to earn money, right? They're not going to be successful. And so it's really this unique combination of hustle and time and confidence because when you sell anything, you have to be comfortable with having 19 no's before you get that first yes. And if you're someone who gets three no's and weeps at your computer and says, I I suck at this, I can't do it, you know, I can't really help you. And and that often happened, you know, someone that would walk in and they were super fired up and you thought you're going to go and be great at this. And then they got a few no's and that's what happens in the beginning of any position, right? You're not going to win right away before any practice. And so that really defeated a lot of people before they even got out of the gates. And that still happens today, right? There's only yeah. so much motivation you can offer someone if they don't have it in them to say, you know what? A no is just a slower path to a yes, then it's hard to be successful. Yep. No, yeah. it's it's interesting you say that because it's it's the way that I I always think about hiring as well. I mean, it's it's you know there's certain skills. Hey, have you sold in the past? And tell me about your accomplishments and how much have you sold and those types of things. But to your point, so much of it is these these soft skills, these attributes. Like I can't I can't teach want. I can't teach grittiness. Like right. if you don't want to do it. I can't get you to do it or want to do it, right? Like that just natural curiosity to be like, I'm going to get one more door. I'm going to make one more call. I'm going to send one more email and I'm going to try and try and try and I'm going to figure this out. I don't think you can teach that, but you can certainly recruit for it. That's right. And and by the way, even recruiting for it, I don't feel like we know, you know, in, instead I sort of thinking it of it, I think of it as like mining for gold. So, you know, we might board 10 people and I know that there's probably two superstars in those 10 people. And how do I figure out who they are fast and invest in them and their success? And so, yeah, I think I think that's what it is. And, and I'd like to think we're getting smarter and, you know, we have more data now than we ever had before, but it's definitely a work in progress. And, and I'm always learning every day. I feel like it's like, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, it's probably the most humbling job in the world because you fail and succeed all in a day, every day. Yeah. So you go through these six cities, you have essentially cohorts of people in all of these cities. How do you know you have something? Like all these hypotheses that you've made, how did you figure out that you actually had something there? I saw that there were so many people who needed this opportunity and I saw that there were so many small business owners who needed an honest, trustworthy, you know, high touch customer service experience with a payment processor. So I knew in my heart that there was something there. I also was entering an industry that's a commoditized industry and, you know, in like VC worlds and a lot of communities, that's scary to people. 
I saw that as a strength because if these guys can sell it who are kind of like used car salesmen, then my people can sell it too. And the average business owner in America changes their payment processor every three years. So I knew that, you know, one in three businesses are changing this year. So that makes it so that you have a really great shot of having someone's ear. And what we did, you know, after a year or two was recognize that we needed an easy way to sell that was a little bit different than our competition. And what our competition was going is they were, they were going into a business and they would say, Hey, I bet I can get you a better rate without even like talking to them, you know? And then that business owner who's always thinking about the bottom line was like, okay, what can you offer me? And then they would offer them a rate and the guys would be like, great, let me sign on this on the dotted line. And then a few months later, their statement comes. It's nothing like that what they were promised, but this guy's long gone. They've already invested a new terminal and it's, it's a whole thing. So I thought, okay, what if we could offer people a free payment checkup? And that means just like your body needs a checkup every year, your payments need a checkup every year. So what we did was we started having our county executives go out to the dentist that they've been going to for six years and their dry cleaner and their favorite car wash and say, I just started working with a payments company, just like your body needs a checkup, your payments need a checkup. I'd love to just ask you five minutes of questions. I will send that back to my full-time team. And within 48 hours, I can spit back to you a beautiful presentation, which will compare your pricing, service, and technology to what Park Place offers. Zero pressure. You can see if it makes sense to switch. And that has been really successful for us because it requires so little training. You just have to be able to start a conversation with a business owner, ask a host of questions digitally. It's sent immediately back to my full-time team and we do the heavy lifting. Then the account executive presents that to the business. And if they say yes to changing, that account executive is done. My full-time team swoops in. We board the account, ship the terminal, you know, get them up and running, train them and do all of the service. And that account executive is free to go on to the next thing. And I knew that from talking to all of these multi-level marketing victims, basically, yeah. they were asked to invest in inventory, you know, in some product line or whatever it ha was. And then they were asked to prey on their friendships. And, you know, people are running away from them at drop off and pick up because they don't want to buy that cream that they didn't need in the first place sure. again. And so they were <laughs> stuck with inventory and they, and they weren't making money. And yeah. so I thought, okay, in this way, you can never ever lose money and it's all recurring revenue. So yeah. I remembered when I really felt excited, one of the first times was one of the first people we trained. I think she might've been the very first pe person we trained. She walked into my office back in the day when people had offices and she walked into my office and she said, I just want you to know I've been selling for XYZ makeup company that I'm not going to name right now. And I've been selling for them for over a year. And I finally built up my business to $800 a month, but I have to reinvent that wheel every month. And I'm finally making enough with Park Place that I'm just going to switch to doing this full time. And it was because she knew she had recurring revenue. So let's say she was making $300 a month. She knows she's going to make $300 a month next month in addition to whatever new business she closes. So I think the hardest part for me, and it continues to be difficult, is that human beings are conditioned to take that $100 check today versus the $500 check in three months, right? We want the immediate gratification. And so showing people that, yes, we might, might not be as lucrative today as a wag.com or something that you're doing hourly, right? 
But in a few months, you'll see that you are building some sort of nest egg because it's rare that you're going to lose an account and you just keep growing. And that is what's happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you, you really found something. I mean, there's so much in there. I mean, from simply you did your research, you understand just the overall merchant services way of doing business where it was very much of a walk in, talk price, all about rate, kind of maybe try to do a little bit of slick talking type of thing. It's just like price, price, price. And you just kind of flip that on its head and you bring it with a different perspective and you come at it from this diagnostic to be able to say, here you go. I mean, it probably kind of shocked some of these business owners to just say, wait, wait a minute. Cause all of a sudden, you know, their, their, their neighbors, right? People in the community are being able to sell this. So there was always already some trust. Hey, I live down the street or around the corner. And then you looked at it and you said, you know, Hey, this, this pitch is, is obviously different. That's how you carve out a business. I mean, that's how you, I mean, that's just listening and iterating, listen and iterate, listen and iterate. So, and then, and then the idea from, I mean, so you have this two-sided marketplace, right? So you have your businesses and now you have your salespeople and you knew that a big, huge pain point for them was normally these big upfront investments of buying, you know, leggings or makeup or cream or whatever it was. And so it's really interesting to see because marketplaces in general are really, really, really hard to make. When you think of Uber and Airbnb and WAG and all of these, it's just, it's hard enough to build a business when you have to go get one set of customers. But essentially you have to get kind of two two sides of it and then make them speak the same language, train, that type of thing. Talk me through a little bit. So you're, you're hitting product market fit. Are, are you doing a lot of this training yourself? Is this your team? Like what does your team look like you know, through this process? Yeah, at that point, there were three of us. And, you know, we would go in and, and train. One was part-time, two of us were full-time. And then we just started growing from there. One of the first hires was customer service because we couldn't have merchant accounts if we weren't servicing them. And so, you know, ironically, like our team isn't much bigger today than it was four years ago. Now we have seven full-time team members. We have 1,400 1099s, and then we have a bunch of part-timers. So, you know, it's really, I think what we've done really well in the last few years is we have an amazing recruiting machine. So we know how to recruit freelancers, right? And and by the way, like you could apply that to any field because it's hard to figure out how to recruit people with a really low cost of acquisition and do it effectively. And so that's what we have really shined at. Now we haven't even made a dent in the merchant market, right? I mean, we have we have merchants, of course, but like there's so much more room to grow. And I think that's the what really gets me excited is yeah. there's so many areas of growth now that we've conquered this freelance recruiting machine. It's really time for us to sort of experience rocket ship growth selling locally. And right. that is what we're focused on now. How did, so when, when you started figuring out that this worked, and are, are, you're in these six different cities. Did you did you stay in the six cities, or did you pull back and say, "Hey, let's let's dig into one, or let's dig into two at a time"? Or did you stay in the six initially? 
We stayed in the six and we've recruited, we have account executives in all 50 states. Like we're, okay. and we have and merchants in, in almost all 50 states as well. So we're very focused on being national. This is, it's because it's a commodity and, and certain businesses that we have are, you know, have multiple locations in different cities. So it's, it's something that you can sell, you can train people remotely. We then very quickly after less than a year moved into online training. So now when someone signs up to be an account executive, all of their training is online. And it's something that, that you can sell from anywhere. We can coach them from anywhere. They can sell when they're on vacation and it's a tax write-off if they're selling, you know, like right. there's so many ways, ways to sell. There's some people that really just want to go to the people they know in their communities. And then there's other people that like to sell to auto body shops. And so they'll look in a phone book and I guess people don't use phone books anymore. That ages <laughs> me, but they'll look on Google and find, you know, yeah. all of the auto body shops within 30 miles of their location and, and cold call them or stop by. And I think, you know, it's still hand to hand combat this industry. It's all about yeah. being in front of people. It's small business owners, no matter what you're selling to small business owners, you have to be in person. And the reason is, and the reason this, this group of people is so hard to reach is because some small business owners are reading the local penny saver at the supermarket and some are watching CNBC and you don't know how to reach them. They're all reading, you know, watching, reading, absorbing different media. Some of them are absorbing no media and most of them are not on their computers all day because they're yeah. servicing their business. So it's, it's a very strange group to be reaching, but it's also really, really pivotal that you have those local relationships and that's what we're capitalizing on. So were you, I mean, is this, you're flying to all of these cities repeatedly over and over. I mean, you're, you, I would imagine you're having cohorts of, of new people joining and you got to get yeah, them. Yeah. I mean, so well, that's the thing that, that really changed. Okay. So in the beginning, we went to these six different cities. We went once to each of these cities and we had one or two day trainings. In the beginning we had two day and then we got smarter and realized one day of training was enough to ask of people because people wouldn't want to come back on the second yeah. day necessarily if they had childcare issues or whatever it was. So one day was plenty. We'd swoop in, train them, and then go back to home base. And you know, what we realized is like, then we started our weekly calls and we would have weekly calls with our account executives. Then they switched to webinars, but there were a lot of ways to reach them. What we're doing right now actually is we're in the middle of building our tech platform, which allows us to have just constant communication with our account executives in a different way. The one thing that I think we haven't done well is create a community out of all of our account executives. And it's only, we're only able to do that through this platform and it's yep. going to be a social community, a selling community, and really sort of change the game for how we interact with our account executives and how we help them reach their goals. So we're super excited about that. I want to come back to that because I think that's going to be a huge piece. I mean, it, when when I think of that, I think of so much of what you're doing is, is all of these people are all, I mean, you're local selling. That's what you're doing. And if all of a sudden you find out that I have all of these other local sellers that's a community. You can share tips. You can get group groups together, and then you can say, "Hey, this community is similar to another community," and then and then you just foster this this bigger. So we're going to come back to that. I, I want to come back to that. So my my question though still stems around like, so you go to each one of these cities this one time. You get these people on board. But what about next month and the next month and the next month? I, I would imagine you're just recruiting more of these freelancers to sell for you. How are they getting up to speed? and train before you start to go digitally? 
We st- we started online training very early on. We would do, okay. so so some of what we would do is like live webinar training. So I would be on like a one hour webinar and train people that way. Then we started doing digital training. But really in the beginning, like we we launched these sixty sellers, and that was kind of enough for us to say in our first year, okay, what's happening? How do we service these people? And then as we grew, we realized, okay, we need to digitally train people because we were getting requests from all over the country. I would yeah. do a lot of press and then. And we got incoming inquiries and suddenly it was like, okay, this, this one local thing is not going to work. Like I remember in our like second or third year, we did a local training in San Diego and a local training, another one in Los Angeles. And some people had a fly to them and it just, it was kind of like, okay, this is time to go back to figuring out how to make this work digitally. And by the way, and that's the weird thing about a startup, right? Like we're four years into it and I still consider us a startup because there are so many things I still want to be doing that I haven't been able to do yet. And also, you know, for the last four years, I've spent so much of my time fundraising. I think that's something that you don't think about when you're starting a business, about how often you're going to have to do that. Yeah. How much time would you say in a given 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 week or a given month, like if you, if you kind of extrapolate it out, how much time do you spend on fundraising versus all the things about working on your business. Is it 10%? Is it 30%? Maybe 50%. I would say that way more than I would like. I think I've spent about 80% of my time with investors and fundraising, which is crazy when you think about it. I mean, obviously it's cyclical and, and there's times when I'm not doing that, but I mean, I'm constantly fundraising. I feel like it never ends. And it's a spiral that I don't really think is healthy for a business too, right? Because if your founder is constantly fundraising, which most founders I know are, it's not, you know, you're not running the business. And so about a year and a half ago, I recruited my brother who I'd been sort of working on for four years, but finally got him to come over. And I was like, I need someone internal who's just like running the day to day because I'm out at a conference speaking or I'm, you know, on a a show or I am, you know, doing marketing or I am meeting with investors and traveling. And and it was hard to do that and oversee the day to day. So that really worked out super well because he's kind of, you know, the internal general manager president and I'm more external. and, And that made it a lot more doable, frankly. So what, when you got there, so you're, so if you hired him a year ago, so you're doing this for three years, you're doing combination of fundraising, running the business, you have training of new people, you're still, you're creating content and all these different things to be able to help people sustain. I mean, this is a lot going on. At what point in time did you, did you feel like, like, hey, we have the ability to like continue this growth? Was there an inflection point or some kind of milestone where you're like, I got my six cities, I got my initial 60 people, like now it's time to go to the like the next step. And it sounds like hiring your brother was maybe the third or fourth step after that because that was almost years later. But how did you know you're like, all right, I gotta pour some fuel into this. I gotta go more fun, I gotta do more fundraising. What, what, what was your kind of your thought process through making those next decisions? I mean, I've never really gotten past that scarcity mentality. I would love to, but I'm not there yet. And I think I'm constantly trying to figure out like, what is, what's the best team? What's the best solution? I feel like it's a, it's a work in progress constantly. I don't think we've ever gotten there. I'm really competitive. I was a competitive athlete as a kid. 
And so I don't think of it as like when I hit this milestone, I'm just constantly trying to hit new milestones. One of the best things about our business is it's recurring revenue. And so even if we just sit there and do nothing, it still grows a little all the time, which is really nice and and very rare for a venture-backed business. But at the same time, like we are constantly thinking about like, oh my gosh, when are we gonna need to raise again? And you know, and how are we doing? And and that's always a stress on our business. I think that I'd love to get to a point where we never have to take any more outside money or, you know, it's smooth sailing and we're just, we're there. And I fantasize about that day. But, you know, I think one of the trickiest things for me is probably I started this business because of a strong social mission I had, which is to inject financial independence into populations of people that might not have had access to it. And I think there, you know, when, when I went to business school, one of the, the common lessons that you hear is like, it's really hard to make change with a nonprofit and it's much easier to have a big change through a for-profit company because a nonprofit is constantly raising money and it's never really sustainable on its own. And if you can create a, a for-profit sustainable business, that's how you really exercise enormous change. But at the same time, the people I'm raising money from don't always care about that social impact. So there's always this sort of conflict between like this thing I want to be doing, which is injecting thousands of you know newly financially independent people into the world who might not have ever been able to achieve that in an hourly position they were capped in or or in the situation they were in but at the same time like constantly focusing on our bottom line and tough i think line. that's always a struggle yeah that's a tough that's a tough line when when you look back at, at the growth that you guys have had and and kind of taken that into an account do you have some like, ah, I wish I would have done it a little bit different or I probably shouldn't have done that or I wish I would have done it this other way? Like what 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 is kind of through this this growth? I mean, four years, 1,400 people. I mean, you you guys have, this is awesome of what you're able to accomplish as well as, you know, who, who you're able to really help support themselves. What are some of the gotchas that, that you've seen along the way that you, you wish you could do a little bit differently? I think that it's scary when you're an entrepreneur and sometimes you cling to things that aren't working because they feel safe, whether it's people or whether it's ways of doing things. I feel like it's only this year that we've gotten much smarter about, okay, this is what we need to be doing. This is a path we need to be on. We need to be much more innovative. We need to be forward thinking. We need to do things differently than we've done them. And we've kind of been resting on our laurels with people and other things for a very long time. And we have to make some very difficult changes. So this has been a big year of growth for us that way. And, you know, I feel like, and I shouldn't say this year, I should say 2022 is a big growth right. year for us. And I feel like this is an opportunity now that we have, we have like, the best team we've ever had. So, you know, even though we're a small team, I would say that everyone on our team is A plus. I'm so proud of all of them and they're all amazing at what they do. And now it's just really time for us to hit our stride with our accounting executives. And I think there's things we could be doing better in terms of how we service our account executives and how we motivate them and keep them engaged on an ongoing basis. So the nice thing about when you have a small company and you're making all the decisions is you can say, okay, let's launch this new marketing campaign this month and that one didn't work and this one did and let's yeah. throw this at the wall and see what sticks. So we're always launching new contests and launching new promotions and things like that. But we're also 
you know, we've, we've, we've tried to do a lot more sort of biz dev partnerships as well. And, and realize that like, you know, there's other ways to grow the business beyond just an accounting executive going out and selling to her network. You know, what if we start generating leads for our account executives, which we've never done before? What if we create more of a community conference, things like that? So I think there's enormous amount of potential for the future that we still haven't unleashed yet, which yeah. I'm super excited about. But I mean, I'm the first person to be like, oh my God, we totally messed that one up. And yeah. now we got to move forward. Yeah. Like when you look back, is it is it more on like the the business itself? Is it on like the recruiting play of, of freelancers? Is there one that you're like, this is the one? If I could have, if I could have changed this, we would have been ten steps that, further ahead or something. I I made a, a bunch of hiring missteps along the way that have really hurt us and maybe made our growth slower than it would have been if I'd hired differently. But those are things like, you know, it's what's the old adage is like hire fast. No, sorry, fire fast and hire slowly. Like I think yeah. you learn those things along the way. And I still think it's really hard. I mean, we're in a, a weird labor market. It's very difficult to have a giant freelance sales force. And sometimes the people you hire would be amazing in another position, but you might not have had them in the right position, which I blame on myself, not on them a lot of the time. So I think it's it's sometimes just figuring out like, what is it? And you don't exactly know what you need because you're creating this position from scratch and you're creating this new thing. And so no one's going to come in with a resume that looks exactly like what you're building. And I think that's one of the hardest. For. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've experienced that a lot myself when, you know, you, you think that this is the problem. So you go recruit the person or the role that you think would be that. And then they start doing that thing. And then you realize that's actually not the problem. And this other thing is the problem. And you're not the best person to do that, solve that problem, which is, which is challenging. That's yeah. And, yeah, and, I, and I, I think I also to your think, point, yeah. you, can, you can only fix it by learning. Right. Well, I also think like when you're an entrepreneur and you know this, Alex, like you're constantly listening to other people's voices too. And you have to solicit advice, right? Whether it's your investors, your board members, your friends, your colleagues, your competition. And that almost clouds it sometimes of like, it's really hard to know what's working and what's not. I liken it to politics, like what we've seen in politics. Like when anyone loses a campaign, everyone's like, I knew it. They shouldn't have had this message. They shouldn't have had this campaign manager. And, and you want to blame everything, right? And I think that when we see that things aren't going well, it's easy to just, in hindsight, think of all these holes you want to poke and blame. And sometimes it's a combination of those things. And sometimes it's an entirely other thing. And I think you just always have to be willing to learn and, yeah. and always keep yourself humble and realize that you're not going to have all the answers. Yeah, that makes, no, I, I totally agree. So. We're going through this. We're going through the story, and you're in these six cities. You have these sixty people. You've you started to figure some things out. You're investing more into the business. What what did it look like to go from kind of there to now? You're in all these different cities and all these different places. You're hiring completely across the board. Like, what was your mentality to think about that? You've already started doing some training, you know, digital. What what kind of bets were you making and what, what were you initially like worried about that either paid off or maybe didn't pay off? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
what you mentioned initially, which is having a two-sided marketplace is really tricky and it remains tricky, right? Like our website used to be focused on recruiting account executives and that was it. And then merchants would get there and be like, wait, what kind of company is this? And like, why am I about to buy payment processing from something that's telling me I can have a new career, right? Like, like right. The, the messaging on the website was like, have a freelance career, you know, change your financial circumstances, <laughs> join Park Place. Confusing, and then yeah. someone goes into their bookstore and tries to sell Park Place and the person quickly Googles it and they're like, what is this? You know, and so yeah. that continues to be a challenge. Now we've gone the other direction with the pendulum and now it's really a website focused on merchants. And I still don't know if that's the right, you know, decision right. for us. But whenever you have a two-sided marketplace, it's very, the marketing and, you know, my background is in branding, but it continues to be tricky to figure out who are we marketing to? Are we marketing to the freelancers? Or are we marketing to the merchants? And initially I thought we're marketing to the freelancers because they're the ones generating their leads from their doctors and their yoga studio and their favorite restaurant. So they're the ones we're marketing to. But then you realize, but people are gonna Google your name and they're gonna wanna see that there's a POS solution at the end Who of the tunnel, this, yeah, you know? So, so it, it, it becomes tricky. So I think that's something that we just changed this year, our website and made it much more merchant focused, which I think has been helpful for when our account executives are selling. We really, what we did great was like, we're amazing at recruiting account executives. We have a three-pronged approach, it works. That is like something we could do in our sleep. The thing that we've been weaker in is figuring out, okay, you've boarded these 10 people. How do you maybe not have one person be successful? How do you have three people be successful in that group? How do you keep them around for the first two months before they've sold anything and still keep their interest? And so that's why we started investing in this platform and the research for the platform and the design of the platform, because we recognize that like this is a time when we're going to really have to make giant changes. You can't motivate people with one on one phone calls and texts. You have to be involved with them every day. And and listen, like we also had to put ourselves in the shoes of a freelancer. It is lonely to be a freelancer. So many of your listeners are probably out there running businesses and thinking about growing their businesses and they might complain that they're on Zooms all day, but not with their colleagues next to them. These freelancers are not even on Zooms all day, right? So like they're at their desks, they have no scheduled Zooms and they're sitting there trying to like cold email people from their chamber of commerce list or their all their doctors or whatever it is and, and make phone calls and stop by. And it can be really grueling. And so if we're not offering them a sort of home base that's really comforting and really community driven, it's hard to keep them engaged. No, it's interesting because with Marketplace, it's it's almost like you have to run two businesses at once, right? You have to run your merchants and then you have to run your freelancers. Yeah. And a lot of what you're talking about is kind of almost kind of like customer retention on the freelancer side is you've done all this work to recruit them. They're coming here. They're like, I'm interested or I'm going to start selling this. Sales, as you know, and we talked about early on was, hey, this is, you're going to have some, you know, you're going to have some rejection. You're going to have some walls and things that you got to jump over. And to your point, if you're lonely, it's easy to just be like, yeah, maybe I'm going to go do something else. And so, you know, it's kind of like you're looking at the data, you're looking at, you know, the, the, the numbers and you're looking at it and saying, you know what, we need to invest and not try to go get more freelancers. We need to actually keep the ones that we have and empower them so it's not one out of three make it, but actually how do we make it so three out of three make it? Right, and that's obviously, I mean, and, and I think one of the one of the trickiest things about that is that like 
when you're recruiting and you're not saying here's, you know, we're, we're, rec- we're not screening them. We're saying you're a 1099. Anyone can become a 1099 with Park Place. We are not screening for job experience, for education, for any of that. We are saying if you have a clean record, you can come and join Park Place and perhaps be the biggest success we have. And so when you have that, I think it it lends itself. You have to understand that if 10 people sign up, three, if you're really lucky, three will be successful. But but are there people, you know, what keeps me up at night is like, are there people we've recruited that would have been awesome had our resources been better? And I think that there are. And so if, if for me, it's like, how do we even go back to some of the people that that gave up really fast and get them re-engaged and say, so in fact, lately I'm like, okay, we have so many account executives. Let's like put a little bit of a halt on recruiting and figure out the motivating part of this. Like how do and we now get that's where that community piece blocked. comes from, right? Exactly. And I can see that community bringing more people together. You reduce that loneliness. I mean, obviously there's training around like right. how do you actually do the job better, but some of it is just, hey, other people are doing exactly what you're doing. The fe- feelings that you have, you're not alone. It's not uncommon. Well, years ago, I was a keynote speaker at a, a huge MLM conference. That I won't name the company right now, but it was a skincare company that's everyone probably has heard of. It's It does phenomenally well. And there were 14,000 women at the conference and 99% were women. And one was more impressive than the next. I mean, these women had so much energy. They were awesome. You'd want to hang out with them. You'd want to buy skincare from them. They were amazing. And then when I dug into it, 98% of them were losing money. They weren't even breaking even. And they paid their own way to the conference. And so I started talking to some of them and they were basically like, I want to do something outside of my house. I feel like there's an opportunity to earn money. But the biggest thing is, these are my friends. This is my community. I love these people. And I thought, oh my gosh, what if I could help them earn recurring revenue while also enjoying the community, right? <laughs> like there has to be a better way. And so that was hugely motivating in starting Park Place. So it sounds like you've really started to kind of figure out how to put all these pieces together around who to invest in, what is the... What is what is the, what the the freelancer cares about too? You're at this conference. You see all these people who are not making money, but they're extremely motivated. You obviously have this great idea around the merchant services, and I have plenty of friends who have done it before, so I understand what the sales pitch looks like and how it needs to be changed. And so you're starting to look at all this together. When when you start to have your growth and kind of this accelerated growth. How do you how do you think about balancing it from let's dump it all into sales and marketing and recruiting let's dump it into this this content and tech platform like how do you think about kind of doing that that investment into the business I mean I think that we've always been a very lean company in the sense that it's a very human capital is our number one investment right human capital and most of our marketing has been organic we've won tons of industry awards we have been you know featured in every press outlet we could imagine so that has been really helpful for us i think a lot of it is like we 
we've been great now at creating community among our full-time people and not so great at the community piece of, of the, the bigger thing. And so it was like, last year it was kind of like just facing me, okay, we've now got to invest in technology. We've never really done that before. And so we had this really big hire and that kind of jump-started everything. We hired a chief product officer from the industry. He like built the first ever payment gateway in the industry and he's been kind of like a, a magic weapon for us. He's, he's amazing. And so that kind of put us in a position where we could really focus on understanding our systems better, our processes better, and focusing on being more evolved technologically, which has been really exciting for us. And I think before that, it was always like people, people, people. And then it was kind of like, okay, now it's time for us to create these systems. Well, it's interesting because, you, I mean, everything that you're talking about is not this, like, you have to have the CTO and all these technical engineers and you have to build this big thing before you go. I mean, you have you've gritty scrapped your way through to, to building this company with all of these people, thousands and thousands of people from across the country who are selling this, and you don't have this AI, beautiful, forward tech, like, cutting edge type technology platform. You figured it out, you had your MVP, you've tested and tested and it's grown from there. And now you can really say, hey, this is where the investment comes into play. So this is awesome. I love the story. Thank you. It is, it has been, it is awesome to hear your story. I'm so, I'm so excited to be able to share this with everybody. Couple last, last questions before we, we break. First of all, we'll have to have you on in, in, in a couple of years so that you can tell about the next growth story. but. Any books, resources, things that you recommend to the audience to, to check out? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Okay, one of my biggest tips is to always be reading fiction. I see so many entrepreneurs reading the latest leadership book, the latest nonfiction book, and I, I personally have gained so much from always reading fiction. It doesn't mean that I don't read those other leadership books or the nonfiction books, but I think it's very important for your mindset and for understanding people and for activating other parts of your brain to read fiction. Second thing I'll mention is my own podcast. I co-host a podcast with another entrepreneur, Amy Nelson. We host a podcast every week called What's Her Story with Sam and Amy, where we share much more sort of personal stories of leading women. So. That is Love definitely it. something that has been really fun to, to get those stories out into the world. And then I would just, I'm a huge fan of cold contacting. I never have a day where I am not reaching out to someone that I admire or have been watching or been following to, you know, get a meeting, get an interview, you know, get as a, as a, as an investor. And so I feel like you never want to rest on your laurels. You always want to be adding to your network and nurturing and cultivating that network. That's all. That's wonderful. What, what's your favorite fiction book? Oh, God, I have so many. I mean, literally, it changes by the day. Of course, I love like Anna Karenina, but I also, right now, I'm reading an amazing book called The Personal Librarian about J.P. Morgan's. It's historical fiction, and it's it's so good about J.P. Morgan's personal librarian. And I always read my kids' lists of of books that they have to read for their school, so it's a great way to bond with your teens, as I'm always... (laughs) reading their reading list and then we can talk about their books and they really yeah. love it because it gives them another person you know to talk to about about their reading 
that's it. So last last question: How does the audience get more of you? How do they find you? Where do they get where do they get more? I am very active on social media, so they can always find me, connect with me on LinkedIn, and just mention Alex's show, and I will accept your request. And they can also read my weekly newsletter that comes out every week about work and life. They can sign up for that at samanthaedis.com. And all of my handles everywhere are at Samantha Edis, E-T-T-U-S. Wonderful. Sam, thank you so, so much for coming on. I love your story. I hope everybody just gets super excited and can learn so much from this because there's there's so many great takeaways that we can from from your story. Thank you for sharing. And thank uh, you I can't so wait much, to have you, on, have you on again. I would love it. Thank you. So much. See ya. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.